for the second year, we're joining a nationwide movement called the Advent Conspiracy. And as you can see from the video, it's a movement to, uh, to simplify, to, to cut back on our, our spending and our debt during the Christmas holidays, and to give in more creative, relational ways, um, and, and to give to people's well-being uh, globally and internationally. And so we're, we're joining that movement by talking about the, the radical generosity of God, and not just the kind of generosity that extends to our debit cards and our bank accounts, but the kind of generosity that extends to our lives. At the end of this series of conversations between December 27 and January 28, we're going to take up an offering for an organization called Made in the Streets. And it's an organization in Nairobi, Kenya, that takes kids in and uh, educates them, works with them, takes kids from the streets who would otherwise have no future or no hope. Uh, I, I hear and sense a, a yearly tradition brewing in our community because last year we uh, gave a $1,000 offering to Touch a Life, which is an awesome organization. We have somebody here who's, who works with Touch a Life. Touch a Life rescues and liberates children from slavery in Ghana, West Africa. So uh, I, I sense a tradition brewing in that every Christmas, instead of, instead of spending all of our money on, on stuff at North Park, we spend part of our money to, uh, to help kids uh, get off the streets, to help kids get out of poverty, to help kids who are hungry in this world. Uh, we we want to support something outside of ourselves, be a part of a cause that's bigger than ourselves. That's part of our commitment to mission. Why would we do something like this? Why would we, why would we participate in the Advent conspiracy? Why would we give an offering to kids in East Africa, halfway around the world? It might seem strange, but I think the answer is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And uh, many of you have a paperback Bible close to you. We're going to read this text. It's on page 659, if you want to follow along in that paperback. And chapter 1, we're going to read chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce, to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for uh, being God. Thank you for being greater than we are. Thank you for being uh, uh, bigger than us. Thank you for having purposes in this whole world. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, this community of faith and for the way that you have brought it into being, for the way that you uh, bring worlds into being just by speaking. And God, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear your word tonight and that you would strengthen my feeble lips to speak something uh, that comes from you. Um, Give us the courage and the faith to act on what we hear and to become people of radical generosity. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it seems like God lives in a different neighborhood than us. Maybe, um, maybe he lives in a big gated community up on a hill somewhere in a, in a humongous, exquisite mansion surrounded by trees and lakes and the most gorgeous views and a, a long, long driveway before you can ever see or get to his house. He's got a 30,000 square foot house and 35 bedrooms and 10 bathrooms. And you know he puts that space to good use because God likes to throw good parties, right? All is peace and well-being in God's neighborhood. There is surplus and abundance in God's neighborhood. Everybody gets along. Everybody knows everybody's names. Everybody's cared for. There is only singing and laughter and joy in God's neighborhood. And then there's our neighborhood. There's crime in our neighborhood. Thugs kidnap and abuse college students off Knox Henderson. In our neighborhood, parents abuse their children. The mentally ill roam the streets without a home. People are out of jobs. There's a recession in our neighborhood. We lose our tempers. We live at odds with each other in our neighborhood. We wonder if we'll be able to pay the bills or make it in the same place till the end of the month in our neighborhood. And we'd love to move into God's neighborhood, wouldn't we? But we just can't afford it. We don't measure up. We are not good enough. We would not be respectable residents of God's community. God is holy, and we are broken. God is loving, and we are not. God is the infinite creator, and we are finite creatures. Sometimes it's kind of easy to feel like we're in this mess down here, and God is in bliss up there. Like like we've got problems down here, but God has got peace up there. Well, maybe Joseph felt like God was living in a different neighborhood. He was a good, law-abiding man. He was faithful to God. He followed the Jewish Torah. He went to the temple often. Sure, he knew he was broken, but he depended on the mercy of God like all of us. His future was full of excitement, particularly because he was engaged to be married to a beautiful young woman named Mary. They would start a family together, grow old together, have lots of babies and grandchildren, and it would just it would be glorious. Until Joseph discovered some terrible news. Mary informed him that she was pregnant. Worse than that, Joseph was not the baby daddy. Can you imagine the conversation between Joseph and Mary? Uh, Mary, what, what, what has happened? What is going on? Why are you showing? 
uh, uh, well, I mean, I know it, it wasn't us because we haven't been together. But, but I promise, I, I, I don't know how this happened. I mean, I, I haven't been with anybody. I mean, I, I'm a virgin. I've never been with anybody in my whole life. And you can see Joseph thinking, well, right, so you're a cheat and a liar. And then maybe in the words of the uh, convenience store attendant in the movie Juno, uh, that's one doodle that can't be undid, home skillet. We've got a problem on our hands. Then, just to come to realize how terrible of news this was for, for these two people. It was terrible news for Joseph and Mary to discover this. Because Joseph couldn't just say, okay, the engagement's off. Uh, let's, let's, let's not be engaged any longer. Because in Joseph's culture, engagement was a binding contract that you broke to your peril. To be engaged was really, it was to be married, except not to live together. Divorce was the only way to break that marriage contract without uh, living together yet, I guess. Divorce was uh, the only way, according to the law of Moses, uh, unless, of course, we wanted to stone Mary because she would have been accused, inevitably, of being an adulteress. And there weren't any scarlet letters, so that was kind of the option. Divorce would have brought shame upon Joseph because Joseph is a law-abiding Jewish righteous man. It would have even brought more shame on Mary because she's an adulteress. She is she is uh, practiced infidelity. Joseph could have easily, I guess, uh, t- taken an interview with a local newspaper and and distanced himself and outed Mary and says, "This is what this is what she's done, and uh, I'm I'm not to be shamed for any of what's happened." But but Joseph's a class act. He's a He's a stand-up guy. He's a righteous man, after all. And so Joseph begins to think, well, I have to obey the law of Moses, the Torah, and so we have to have a divorce at least. But I'll, I'll do it quietly so, so few people will know. What a mess. Where, where are you, God? You must be living in a different neighborhood. You certainly wouldn't involve yourself with this kind of tabloid drama. Adultery, pregnancy out of wedlock, those are the kinds of things that happen in our neighborhood, not God's. And then something shocking, more shocking than the baby news, happens. Not a moment after Joseph has the thought about divorcing Mary, does he fall asleep and have a crazy dream. And in his dream, he sees this huge, intimidating figure, gleaming with light, exuding with power. And in this, this blast of a voice, he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Translated, don't you dare divorce that woman. Because she wasn't lying. She hadn't been with anyone. The Spirit of God, believe it or not, has impregnated her. She's going to have a baby boy. You should name him Jesus. That means the Lord saves. The reason we're naming him Jesus is because he will save his people, God's people, from their sins. When Joseph woke up, probably in a cold sweat, Probably scared to death, he went through with the marriage. He, he followed through with what he had heard in that dream. He took Mary as his wife and he took ownership. He adopted that baby boy as his own, as his son. And they named him the Lord Saves. Pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Let's be honest. This is a pretty ridiculous story. If we'd just seen that story on a movie screen, we'd call it science fiction. That's how crazy it is. We might even see it in the Enquirer. Woman impregnated by alien. 
You know, it's that, it's that outrageous. What in the world is going on here? When Matthew tells this story, he includes a little theological nugget that clues us in to the significance of this bizarre story in verses 22 and 23. 659 again, if you want to follow along. All this took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. To put it mildly, there is all kind of debate about this little story and about these couple of verses from, from the historicity of, or even the, the scientific plausibility of a virgin having a baby, giving birth to a child, um, to, to the fact that the original text that's being quoted here from Isaiah probably doesn't read virgin, probably reads young woman. Not to mention that when Isaiah offers this prophecy 700 years before Jesus is born, he's not thinking about a child born to Mary. He's thinking about a child born to King Ahaz. And if you're curious, if that piques your curiosity about this debate, you should look into it. It's really, it's quite fascinating. Personally, I think that if we assume that God is infinitely powerful and if God actually does interact in this world, that it is not a stretch of the imagination to believe that something like this could happen in God's story. For God to impregnate a woman for his purposes, which I think explains the fact that the church has affirmed for centuries this story in creeds and tradition because it was based on such an assumption that that God, and not just our scientific processes, is governing the world. I want to go beyond that debate and those, those debates about, about the details of this text to what Matthew is trying to communicate when he tells this story. Matthew says, the story in Isaiah about Emmanuel finds its ultimate fulfillment in the story of Mary and Joseph. Jesus, the Lord saves, is Emmanuel. God with us. And the reason that this designation, this name, Emmanuel, is important to Matthew is because the early church came to believe that though Jesus was born at one specific point in history, that he existed well before that, since the creation of the world, as part of the community of persons that is the Godhead. He existed as the Son of God since before the beginning of time. And in the words of Matthew's pal John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Matthew is saying, God decided to move into our neighborhood. God is not unaware of our neighborhood He is not indifferent to what's going on in our neighborhood. He's not absent. He's not distant. He's in the birth canal, for crying out loud. God is deciding to move into our neighborhood. God packed up and left His neighborhood for our neighborhood. Jesus left the splendor of heaven to buy a house on our street. He left the power and peace of the Godhead to become our neighbor. And what's more, he moved into our neighborhood, not just to be our neighbor and be our buddy, but to transform our neighborhood. He moved into our neighborhood because his name means the Lord saves. 
And He's here to save us from our sins. He'll, he'll turn our mess into bliss. He'll turn our problems into peace. He'll turn our neighborhood into God's neighborhood. This is one radical act of generosity for God. God doesn't bother to send His courier to give us a message about how we should fix our neighborhood. He doesn't send His yard man to come and help us clean up our yards and clean our streets. He doesn't send His general contractor to come and fix our houses. He sends His Son. God gives Himself to us. The Holy One enters unholy territory. The Loving One settles down in an unloving neighborhood. The Creator mingles with the created. The pure one risks being infected by the disease of the sinful ones. That is the gift that we wait for this Advent season. More than a we, more than gift cards, more than tacky Christmas sweaters, as much as we love them, we wait for God in the flesh, Jesus the Messiah, to become our neighbor. When there's crime in our neighborhood, we can say, the Lord saves. When we can't find a job, we can say, God is with us. When the mentally ill long for homes, we can say, the Lord saves. When we can't see past our own brokenness, we can say, God is with us. When our relationships are totally distraught and a mess, the Lord saves. God is with us. God is with us. How are we supposed to respond to God's decision to move into our neighborhood? I think we receive some initial cues from Joseph and Mary. In this story, Joseph responds to God by obeying God and taking action. He, he actually follows through with his marriage with Mary. He adopts Jesus as his son. He does what it takes to be a righteous, obedient person before God. God's radical generosity prompts Joseph to be radically generous on behalf of Mary and Jesus. And we'll talk more about this kind of generosity, this kind of uh, generosity that, that pushes us to help others, to be generous towards others in a couple of weeks in our house church gatherings. Uh, in Luke's version of the story, Mary is also visited by an angel, and she responds with praise and with a song that we know as the Magnificat. The first lines start, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. God's radical generosity prompted Mary to be radically generous toward God through praise, through, through a song. And we'll talk more about this kind of generosity toward God next week in our house church gatherings. We'll also have a chance to practice this generosity toward God a life of praise and worship and gratitude uh, in the moments that come, the moments that follow in our communion experience. And, and as we've been doing in our praise times, the praise times that will follow as we conclude this gathering, God, God is with us. That, that's the message of the Advent season. We are waiting for God to be with us. God is with us. God is with us. Sean, why don't you come up and frame up our communion experience?